We'll only cover nine verses today. So let's read Joshua chapter 5, first nine verses. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Ha'arlot. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all of the men of war died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised. But all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. And their children, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now it came about when they had finished circumcising all the nation that they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the approach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Father, we thank you for the historical account that is before us and for the wonderful lessons that you've been teaching us through what unfolded so long ago. And we just ask that today you would continue to instruct us, Lord. You would instruct us corporately, and you would instruct us individually. And right now, we submit our hearts to you, and we ask the Lord you would do a work in them. I pray over us as a congregation that we would let down walls and barriers and resistance to you poking and probing and cutting away at our hearts. And we would truly say, in one mind and one accord, Holy Spirit, please come and have your way. A somewhat terrifying prayer in the flesh, but wonderful in the Spirit. Lord, please come and instruct us. Teach us. Move amongst us, Lord. Show us great and wonderful things in thy word. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, now that we get to Joshua chapter 5, the children of Israel are finally on the west side of the Jordan. They have finally made it through the Jordan River. They've crossed over, and they crossed over on dry land, and they are in the promised land. 500 years of prophetic history fulfilled as Israel is now in the land of Canaan. And that strong flow, the Jordan River, that had them hemmed in and cut off from the promises of God is behind them now. It has been dealt with. They've made it through that strong flow that had them hemmed in and cut off from the blessings and the fullness of life in God. And you will recall that their separation from the fullness of life in God and the blessings and the promises, their separation was due to disobedience. Not necessarily theirs per se, but they were part of the corporate body that disobeyed their fathers who refused to go into the land in Numbers 13 and 14 because of disbelief, because of a lack of faith. And so that generation, the previous one, the Exodus generation, suffered the consequences. They died in the wilderness. And the current generation, the Joshua generation, suffered the consequences of the sins of the fathers. They wandered in the wilderness. 
until they were confronted with that strong flow that had them hemmed in and cut off. And they saw the enormity of it. And they realized that in and of themselves, they would never get across it. But the Lord, the Lord cut off the waters of the Jordan. And the waters stood up some 20 miles north. And about two and a half million Jews walked across there on dry land. And now they are in the land. That demarcation of disobedience having been overcome by the grace and the power of God. And what happens then is that the enemy sits up and takes notice. You'll notice in verse 1, it says that they had heard what the Lord had done and their hearts melted. There was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. The enemy had heard because no doubt they had sent spies to see. They knew that Israel was camped out on the east side of the Jordan. They were aware of that, and there would have been spies watching them. They had already heard reports that they were coming to take the land. And I'm sure that those spies surveyed those Jews on the east side of the Jordan, and the Jordan flowing so fast and overflowing its banks at the time of harvest, and they said, they'll never get across. We've got months until this river goes down, and maybe then they'll find a way around. But as for now, the Jews are on that side, and we're on this side. We're not worried about it. But they forgot about the Lord. And the Lord cut off the waters of the Jordan. And the water stood up some 20 miles north. And two and a half million Jews came across on dry land. And now they're in the land. And the enemy is terrified. The enemy has seen the power of the Lord. The deliverance of the Lord. The redemptive working of God. And it has sent the enemy quivering and shaking. Now that God's people are in God's promises. And so it is in our lives. When we begin to walk in the promises of God, when we begin to lay hold of by faith the fullness of life in Christ, when we begin to live the abundant life that Jesus spoke about, then we serve notice to the enemy. As long as we're on the east side of the Jordan in the wrong side of God's promises, the enemy does not sweat you and I. I'm talking about the enemy of your soul, Satan. When we're on the wrong side and hemmed in and cut off by our bad choices, he isn't sweating us. He doesn't need to mess with us. We're doing a good job on our own. But when we start to obey the Lord and follow the Lord, and the Lord delivers us and brings us through and gives us the victory, then the enemy is served notice. And when they came onto the west side of the Jordan, these enemies, the Amorites and the Canaanites, knew our time in the land is limited. This was their eviction notice being served. It was just a matter of time. And when the Christian begins to walk in the victory of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit, the enemy has served notice in our lives because he's got no legal right. They had no legal right over the land anymore. It belonged to the Lord. He gave it to Israel. Deal with it. They had no legal right anymore. They were going to be removed. And so it is in our life. Satan has no legal right over us anymore because of the cross of Jesus Christ. He has no ownership, he has no possession, he has no place, but he's a squatter. And any area that you give him, he'll take it. And he'll tie down and he'll hold down and he'll dig in. If you give him any land, he'll take it. He can't take what you don't give him. He's got no right, no rule, no authority. In fact, you have authority over him. Jesus Christ gave the disciples authority in Mark chapter 3 verse 14. And he gave it to him again in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And because of our identification with Jesus Christ, who is the head over all things, the one who created all things and the one who holds all things together, because of our identification with him, we have authority over the enemy. It's not because of anything in ourselves. It's because of who Jesus is and what he has done. But we are identified 
with him through salvation. And we are kings, I mean children of the king, children of the most high God. And so when you cross that Jordan, when you press in and you begin to lay hold of the fullness, lay hold of the promises, and walk in the power of the Spirit, the enemy gets afraid. You're no threat to his kingdom on the wrong side. You start to get right, and you're a threat to the kingdom of darkness. Amen? And so now Israel has come into the land, and the enemy is afraid. And, and, and by all that one could discern with your human intellectual faculties, by all that one could discern, this would be the perfect moment to go ahead and take Jericho. Jericho's the goal. They're going to take Jericho. It happens in the next chapter. But this would be the perfect moment because what they've got working for them now is the element of surprise. In warfare, you always want the element of surprise. And they did not expect the enemy, that the Jordan would be cut off and stand up and that the children of Israel would come through. They came through in a day. They've got the element of surprise. And, and so any military commander, which Joshua was, any military commander and any military people, which Israel were, would think this is the time to press on and take Jericho. We've caught them unaware. We've caught them off guard. And now is the opportune moment. But what we discover in our story is that God had a different agenda. And so often that's the case. What makes a world of sense to you and I doesn't make sense in the economy of God. God's the all-wise God. We're dealing with, with a finite ability to understand things. He is infinite. And though it would have made all the sense in the world for them to do so, God had a different agenda. And so the whole nation is stopped and they're circumcised. A second time. It's not what you think. It means the ones that haven't been circumcised are now circumcised, not a second circumcision. And what that would effectually do is immobilize an entire army. It wasn't babies they were circumcising. It was men. It would immobilize an entire army. Their fighting force would become incapacitated for days, it says, while they healed. They were now an incapacitated military force. They were supposed to be there to take the land. And now God himself immobilizes and incapacitates them through this gig of circumcision. Now, their incapacitation, their immobilization, that was not the point of the circumcision, but that was certainly an effect of it. And again, by all human reasoning, this was not good timing. As one author paints a picture of the scene, he says, War loomed only hours away. Behind the masses of God's people, the flooding Jordan blocked all retreat. Before them rose the ominous ramparts of Jericho, her gates shut, sealed tight, and her men of war on the walls. Most of the Israelites had never seen a fortified city. And knowing the recurrent pessimism of this people, we can be sure that fears ran high in the camp. Despite the great things God had done for them, humanly speaking, Joshua now bore all the responsibility of leadership. How he would have liked to have Moses there to talk to, but there was no Moses. Joshua had sole authority. And now Joshua is put in a very difficult place as a leader. Joshua here is going to have to decide between doing what makes sense or doing what God said. He's going to have to make a decision and he's going to lead the nation in it. And it's a difficult situation because, again, everything within them says that going forward and taking Jericho now makes sense. And what the Lord was telling them to do didn't make any sense. And you can be sure that as Joshua chooses to lead the nation in obedience here, that that was not a popular choice. If I know anything about the history of Israel and the nature of men, 
That was not a popular choice. The popular choice would have been to move on in that momentum. But Joshua obeys the Lord, stops the nation, pulls out the flint, and the whole nation of them is circumcised. And from a human viewpoint, Joshua, their military commander and their leading, their leader would now be jeopardizing everything. And I imagine the grumbling in the camp. Moses never would have done this. Moses wouldn't have made this kind of blunder. Moses wanted of. And Joshua, the pressure of man on him. But the desire in his heart to obey the Lord, man, we experience that daily, don't we? And Joshua is going to have to ignore the majority and go with what he knew the Lord was telling them to do. From a human standpoint, he was jeopardizing everything. From a perspective of faith, he was doing the right thing. He knew that their success depended on obeying God's word. And oftentimes, God's word is contrary to what is intuitive to us or what makes sense from circumstances or our own understanding. And so the Bible tells us explicitly in Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Lord, what do you want me to do here? Lord, what is the right way? How would you have me move forward? Which way should I go? Lord, what is your will? In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but rather fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. There's a promise of the scriptures. That when you obey the Lord... Contrary to intuition and circumstances and human wisdom, when you obey the Lord, no matter how much it costs, that act will eventually be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Now, the half-tribe of Manasseh and the Reubenites and the Gadites, they didn't believe that, did they? They are the ones who settled on the east side of the Jordan. You remember the story from Numbers 32. They settled on the east side of the Jordan. They came to a place of ease and comfort. And they said, this looks good for us and all of our stuff. And we want to settle right here. Settle being the key word. We would like to settle in this place. This makes sense to us. We know that the Lord has said that we're to go over there. But it makes perfect sense for us to stay here. And Moses said to them in Numbers 32, do not do this. This is exactly what your fathers did in Numbers 13 and 14 when they rebelled against the Lord at Kadesh Barnea. Do not do this. Obey the Lord and go into the land. And they said, nope. This makes perfect sense to us. We know what the Lord is saying, but we think this is going to work out just fine. Does that sound familiar to you? It does to me. I know what the Lord is saying, but he doesn't understand the circumstances. He doesn't know what I'm going through. He'll, he'll, he'll be okay with it. No big deal. It's going to work out just fine if I stay right here. It didn't work out fine for them. You know what God made them do? And this would teach them such a big lesson. God made the men, the warriors, those who had chosen to stay on the east side, he made the men still go into battle on the west side with the rest of Israel. They would still go to battle. Their buddies would still die. They would still see the warfare. They would have all the battle, all the blood, none of the blessings. We shortcut and we compromise and we settle because we think it would be easier. They would have all the same battles, spill all the same blood, but they would never have all the blessings of the promised land. Beyond that now, their family would live a separated life from the economy of God. The tabernacle would go on to the west side. 
The ark of God, the presence and the power and the person of God would be on the west side. The temple would be built in Jerusalem on the west side. And they would be stuck forever on the east side. And their kids would be raised separated from the worship structure of God. Not able to experience, not able to have the atonement through the sacrifices. Not able to experience that worship center in the life of Israel as it was centered around God. And so they would start to wonder, who is this God and what does it mean anyway? And that older generation would see, wow, we've blown it with our kids. And they would learn to live to regret it in Joshua 22. They would make a false worship structure there. And they would get in trouble for that. And that place of ease and comfort that they loved so much. In 1 Chronicles chapter 5, when the Assyrians came and invaded Israel... They who were on the east side of the Jordan were the first to fall to the enemy. They fell to the enemy. They were removed from the land, that place of comfort that they loved, and they never returned there. <clears throat> they would never go back to that place that at one time made so much sense to them. It would be destruction for them. Christians, hear the word of the Lord. It made all the sense in the world, humanly speaking, for them to compromise. They could rationalize it all day long for their family, for their wives, for their goods. But that compromise was, for them, in the end, destruction. And so Joshua says, no. We're not going to just go ahead. We're going to be very careful now to obey the Lord. And so they stop, and they do the circumcision gate. Now let's talk about circumcision for a moment. We'll look at it three ways. What is the meaning of circumcision? We'll look at what it means generally in the Old Testament, personally for us in the New Testament, and then thirdly, specifically for Israel here in Joshua 5. Please keep a finger here in Joshua 5 and turn back to Genesis 17. <clears throat> Genesis 17. The meaning of circumcision in general in the Old Testament unfolded to us here in Genesis 17, starting in verse 9. Genesis 17, 9. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is brought, bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now this was given to Israel some 500 years earlier than Joshua 5. And it is very clear that every male in Israel at all time always was to be circumcised on the eighth day. And what it served as was a sign or a seal of the covenant between Abraham and God. 
between God and Abraham's descendants. It was a sign or a seal of the covenant. It was not the substance of the covenant. The substance of the covenant is given to us in the previous verses, verses 6 through 8. Let's read those. Here we have the substance of the covenant, Genesis 17, verse 6. God says to Abraham, And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. For the life of me, I don't know why there is conflict in the Middle East. It's very clear who the land belongs to. But before I digress, this is the substance of the covenant. God said that he would multiply Abraham, who previously had no children, by Sarah. That he would multiply Abraham, that nations and the nation would come forth from him. And he said that he would be Abraham's God and that his descendants would be his people and he would be their God and that he would give them the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. Now that's the substance of the covenant. I will multiply you, I will make nations from you and the nation, I will be their God and your God and I will give you a place, a land, as an everlasting possession. That's the substance. The seal, the physical sign was the circumcision. It's kind of like the rainbow in Genesis 9.13. God made a covenant with Noah. The substance of the covenant was that he would not flood the earth in that way again. That he would not wipe out the human population in that way again. That was the substance of the covenant. But the sign or the seal was the rainbow. It was the visible manifestation, the visible reminder. And so circumcision for the Jews. It's like a wedding ring. I wear this wedding ring because I made a covenant between my wife, Kate, and my God, Jesus Christ. The covenant of marriage. This is not the covenant. It's a sign of the covenant. It speaks of the fact that I am bound by covenant, that I am in a covenant relationship. And circumcision spoke to the fact that they were bound by a covenant and in a covenant relationship with God. This shows that I intend to remain faithful to that covenant. Circumcision meant that they knew that God was absolutely faithful to his covenant. It was a sign that pointed to the fact that they were part of that covenant, that they were God's people. Now, no doubt the question comes up, okay, it's a sign of the covenant, but why that and why there? There's no, that, that, we just wonder why that and why there? I like the rainbow. How about a rainbow or a ring? That's so nice. It's a good question. I leave it to a man much more mature than myself to answer it. John MacArthur, from his commentary in Colossians, he says this, listen. The cutting away of the male foreskin on the reproductive organ was a graphic way to demonstrate that man needed cleansing at the deepest level of his being. No other part of the human anatomy so demonstrates that depth of sin inasmuch as that is the part of a man that produces life and all that man produces is sinful. 
makes sense. Now, what is very important about this sign, the seal, the covenant of circumcision is that that outward sign was to reflect an inward reality. That outward sign was to reflect an inward reality. What God was most concerned about is the circumcision of the heart. The circumcision of the heart. He is not impressed by or overly concerned with outward displays of religiosity. What he wants is an inward reality of relationship. And the outward expression, void of the inward reality, is meaningless. So what is important to God was that that covenant did something in the heart of his people. That outward thing was a reflection of an inward thing. It's like baptism for you and I. Baptism for the Christian is an outward display of an inward reality. An outward showing of a doing that has happened on the inside. That on the inside, by the cross of Jesus Christ, we've been made brand new. We've been washed white as snow. That the old man has gone down and has died and we have risen to newness of life with him. That is a work of God that God accomplishes in us. Baptism is an outward display of that inward reality. Apart from the inward reality, baptism is meaningless. So you get dunked in water. What does that do? God looks down and goes, oh, he went in the water. Oh, awesome. Okay, let him in. This is great. No, there's no meaning in that. It is to be a reflection of an inward reality. When it is, then it is meaningful. We need to be very careful of religious displays, whatever they might be. Words that we say, gestures that we make, things that we do. If they are void from an inward experience and love relationship, they're meaningless. In fact, I would say they're an abomination before the Lord. Because what they do is they give a person a false sense of security in their sick sense of religiosity. I showed up, I raised my hand, I said this, I did that, I must be okay with God. You gotta be kidding me. Jesus Christ did not spill his blood upon the cross so we could be religious. So we could do things. He spilled his blood upon the cross that we could know him, that we could love him, that we could experience and be with him. And so this outward sign of circumcision had to, for the Jews, reflect an inward reality of relationship. And God speaks about that in the book of Deuteronomy. You read it two days ago in your one year of Bible reading. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. God says to them, circumcise then your heart and stiffen your neck no more. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. <clears throat> Jeremiah 4, 3 through 4. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and to Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground, the hard ground in your heart, and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. See, it didn't matter that they just had this outward sign if there was no inward reality. In Jeremiah 9, 25 through 26, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. For all the nations are uncircumcised and the house of Israel are uncircumcised of their heart. 
That passage demonstrates that it is possible to have all sorts of stuff happening on the outside and nothing happening on the inside. And that that's an abomination before the Lord. He looks upon, he is concerned with, he went to the cross for your heart. So that's circumcision, generally speaking, in the Old Testament, what it means. And now let's look at what circumcision means personally for you and I in the New Testament. Go to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, we'll start reading in verse 9. A wonderful passage here about Jesus Christ. Concerning Jesus, it says in Colossians 2, 9, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. There's no religious display that you can add. In him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. Verse 11 now. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 13. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So we are told that in the New Testament economy, there is a spiritual circumcision that takes place. It's a circumcision made without hands, it says there in verse 11. That means it is accomplished by God in the life of the believer through salvation. God is the one who performs this circumcision. And what it is, is the removal of the body of flesh. The removal of the body of flesh. Not speaking about uh, this, this mass of tissue. Or not speaking about just your whole body, but rather the physical body that belongs to and was dominated by the sinful desires. That's what God cuts away at the point of salvation. The old sinful nature, the fallen aspect of man, the sinful nature that was subject to sin and pursued sin and was contrary to God. When you become a new creation in Christ Jesus through salvation, that old thing is cut away. Behold, all things become brand new. And God strips it away and just throws it away like some old filthy garment you want nothing to do with anymore. And so it says in Romans chapter 6, verses 10 and 12, Our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now, that is an incredible theological truth. That our sinful nature was crucified with Jesus Christ, that that body of sin might be done away with, the circumcision without hands, so that we are no longer slaves to sin. That is a theological truth that Christians, you have got to cling to. Because Satan would like you to believe otherwise. Satan would like you to think that he can enslave you. The world would like to see you walk in defeat and not in victory. 
But this is a theological truth that we must cling to, that we are no longer slaves to sin. And so how do we respond? How do we walk? We don't let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Hello, it's called no. We say no. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go there. Holy Spirit of God, strengthen me. Give me power from on high to stand firm and resist the devil, and then I'll see him flee from me. Help me in the moment of this temptation. Thank you that no temptation has overcome me except for that which is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not let us be tempted beyond that which we are able to bear, but with the temptation will provide the way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And the way out is the power of the Holy Spirit, working in conjunction with the fact that that old sin nature has been cut away, laid aside, rendered inoperative. Sin no longer has power over us. If you're a Christian and you're walking in defeat and not in victory, I'm sorry for that. We need to work on that. But don't let that affect your theological outlook. Don't determine your, theolo your theology by your experience. Bad, 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 bad. Don't do that. Let your experience be dictated by your theology. Or at least try to line your experience up with the theology of the Bible. If you're walking in defeat, I'm sorry for that. We need to work on that. We perhaps need to lay hands on you and pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the power of God to come into your life. And maybe we, we need to work on some discipleship with you. Maybe we need to get you into a big, fat, greasy diet of the Bible. <laughs> but we need to work on that. But don't abandon true theology and say, well, Jesus Christ just doesn't work anymore. Man, that's a mantra of the world today. Even the Christian world. Yes, Jesus Christ, good and fine and okay, but there's more. You need some other things. No, you don't. Jesus Christ is sufficient for all things. We don't believe that. Why are you a Christian? Go be something else. Jesus Christ is sufficient for all things. And there is this wonderful possibility of victory. And yet we find this truth. Even Paul the Apostle found it in Romans chapter 7. That we still sin. We know the right thing to do, but we don't always do it. Sometimes we find ourselves still sinning. Is that true? Anybody here that doesn't sin? I want to know you. Okay, we all sin, and yet sin no longer has power over us because, listen, that old flesh has been rendered inoperative, but it has not entirely been done away with yet. There is an unfolding of salvation unto the day that we see the Lord. We have already been saved from the penalty of sin. We are daily being saved from the power of sin, and when we see the Lord, we shall then be saved from the presence of sin. And that old flesh once and for all utterly destroyed and done away with. And then there will be no more sin. Ain't nobody sinning in heaven. Then our salvation is accomplished. That's why concerning the coming of the Lord, look up for your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. It's not yet totally complete. This is not the end of the road. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are daily being saved from the power of sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin. For now that flesh has been rendered inoperative. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. And now, finally, last point. What circumcision means specifically for the children of Israel in Joshua 5? Go back there now, Joshua 5. Now in Joshua 5... The circumcision takes place with a flint stone. By the way, uh, flint was excellent 
I mean, to you and I not, but in those days it was excellent. They would take uh, a flint and, and knock it together, and these little shards would come off, and they were razor sharp. And we know from history and from archaeology that they employed those tools even after they had access to metal and to other things. It was hard to get anything sharper than flint. So flintstone circumcision here. And um, flintstones, I'm sorry. Okay, and so they would use the flintstone, that was my rewind, they would use that flintstone and they were all circumcised, why? Because they had not yet been circumcised. The previous generation that came out of Israel, they had been circumcised according to the commandment of the Lord. But these, those who were born in the, in the wilderness experience and post the Exodus, they had not been circumcised, why? Because that previous generation was just 100% pure cheese. They flaked out on entering into the land in Numbers 13 and 14. They didn't have faith. They didn't believe the Lord. They didn't lay hold of His promises. They didn't go in. And now that they're wandering in the wilderness, they don't even circumcise their kids. They knew they were supposed to circumcise their kids on the eighth day. They didn't celebrate the Passover. They didn't do anything pleasing to the Lord during that time, that previous generation. And so we have here a generation who does not bear the mark of that covenant. And so now they're going to have to be circumcised for that reason. And so what they're endeavoring to do here under the leadership of Joshua is they are endeavoring to be very careful to obey all that the Lord has commanded them. Be very careful. What they're wanting to do with regards to their obedience to the Lord is dot their I's and cross their T's. You know, it would have been very easy for them to, to just press on and say, come on, we're already in the land. We got the victory. We'll do that later. I know we're supposed to be circumcised. We'll do it later. The Lord understands. He knows. Let's just go and do what we need to do right now. We'll obey him later. Joshua says no. Because Joshua received the word of the Lord in chapter 1, verse 8. Look at it. Joshua 1, 8. The Lord speaking to Joshua in verse 8 of chapter 1 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. Joshua knew that their success in the land depended on their careful obedience to the word. So it is with you and I. Joshua knew that their success in the land depended on their careful obedience to the Lord. And so they're being very careful to obey. It's against what intuition says and what wisdom says, but they stop and say, we will obey the Lord. And so they do this thing. And I, I think we ought to take note of that in our own lives. We are too quick to discount the wisdom of God and the rulings of God, and the precepts of God. We are no longer under the law. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. But that doesn't mean that we are lawless. God still has precepts and commandments that we're to walk by. We're to be very careful to obey them. Joshua knew that this was a situation, and so this is a fulfillment of what God told him in chapter 1, verse 8. They're being careful here to obey the Lord. They don't want to end up like the Reubenites and Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh in a place of compromise. And what it is, is a huge display of faith in God's word. It's a huge display of faith. And it had to do with their hearts as well. 
It wasn't that they would just be going, oh, fine, okay, here, here you go, just cut it, okay, we're done, let's just get on with it now. It had to do with their hearts. In their hearts, they would have to come before the Lord and go, oh, yeah. The Lord established a covenant with our father Abraham 500 years earlier. And in that covenant, he said he would make Abraham, who was uh, a father to no children, many nations and a great nation. And he said that he would be the God of Abraham and our God, the descendants. And he said that he would give us a land. And it has been 500 years, but God has kept his covenant. Oh, yeah, we want to remember. We want to obey. We want to rejoice in our hearts. And so then they would take that mark of the covenant on the outside of their body, which was a reflection of them experiencing the fruit of that covenant on the inside as they entered the land. Another reason that it was so important that they be circumcised at this juncture is because it identified them as God's people. The people into which they were going were an uncircumcised people, and this was distinctive for Israel. Circumcision was not, Israel were not the first people ever to be circumcised. Other cultures had already practiced that, but what God did was ascribe a brand new meaning to it for Israel. But these people in the land, they were uncircumcised. So it marked them as God's people. It reaffirmed their covenantal relationship. It displayed faith in God's promise. And it was an outward mark of their confidence that God would complete the covenant to the fullness. Are you careful to obey the Lord? Or is your obedience dictated by convenience or understanding? And then in verse 9, and we're finished. Chapter 5, verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. We spoke about this last week. Gilgal, Gilgal means rolling, basically. Circle or rolling. And he says, now that the flesh has been cut away, the shame of slavery has been rolled away. I have rolled away the reproach of slavery. And so it is when we come to Jesus Christ in salvation and there's a circumcision of the heart that happens without, hand, without hands, the shame of that old life is rolled away. The shame of slavery and, and the shame of that old fleshly stuff is rolled away. And it's rolled away for them at this moment. And the exhortation for you and I is do not... Be afraid of the Lord's scalpel. They had to be cut this day. You can be absolutely sure that there would be no battle and no victory until the flesh was cut away. There would be no battle and no victory until the flesh was cut away. Do not be afraid of the scalpel of the Lord. It is the word of God, the two-edged sword, and it is wielded by the Spirit of God in the love of Jesus Christ. And because he loves you, he will come to cut away some of that stuff occasionally. He disciplines those whom he loves. He prunes us according to the word of God. Don't be afraid of the pruning of the Lord, the cutting of the Lord. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do, Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. All things are laid bare. There is no secret life with the Lord. He already knows. And he's coming with a two-edged sword. And he wants to cut that stuff out and roll away the shame of it. Don't squirm on the operating table. 
Let the Lord perform the procedure by his word. Is the Lord dealing with you in an area of his life? Say yes and amen, Lord, do it. Is he dealing with you in an area of your life? Let the Lord have his work. There's no battle and there's no victory until that flesh is cut away. And the Lord loves you, wants to refine you, build you, wants a mark of the covenant of grace on you. So he cuts away those things that so easily entangle us and ensnare us. And so it says in Romans 6, 11 through 14, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. There is a theological truth we need to lay hold of. Sin shall not be master over you. So don't subject yourself to it. What we do is we show up to sin. Sin, here I am, have your way. Romans 13 says, don't make a provision for the flesh, but present your body to the Lord. Present yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice and your members as instruments of righteousness. Sin shall no longer be master over you. And what does it say in Psalm 24? Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and who has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek thy face, even Jacob. Selah. Let's be the generation that seeks the face. Let's be the ones that, that let the scalpel of the Lord cut away those dead, nasty things. And then let's come before him today and present ourselves as, as instruments of righteousness. Maybe you need to do that today for real. The Lord is dealing with you in an area and you need to say, Lord, help me. I know you want to deal with this area of my life. I need you to deal with this area of my life. Lord, help me. The Holy Spirit is the helper. Lord, come and help me. Please come and remove, cut away. I'm submitting myself to you. Accomplish that work. Help me, Lord. Deliver me. Save me. So the Lord does. And then maybe what you need to do then is come and get on your knees and present yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice, instruments of righteousness. I mean, literally, physically, actually come and get on your knees and say, Lord, here I am. I'm presenting myself, my members, as instruments of righteousness. Lord, use me. I'm seeking your face. Lord, use me. I know God will answer those prayers today. Amen? Lord, thank you so much for the cross of Jesus Christ the forgiveness that we receive through the blood. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here that has not received that forgiveness, that today would be the day that they call out on you. That they would say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need to be forgiven. Forgive me according to what Jesus Christ did upon the cross. And Lord, I pray that you'd flood them with grace and mercy. I pray that today you would set the captives free. Even those of us that know you and are bound by fleshly things, that you would come and cut it away, that freedom would rule and reign in our hearts, Lord. That freedom would rule and reign in this place. You would cover us with your grace. You would wash and cleanse and renew and restore, purify and empower and use your people, Lord. If you guys need help with these things today, the prayer team is up here. They'll help you. Let's press into the Lord.